You're listening to Randall Wallace Presents, formerly Bridging the Political Gap, the number one American history podcast of 2024 by Feedspot.com. In 1978, China was emerging from its cultural revolution as one of the world's poorest nations. Its revolutionary leader, Chairman Mao, had just died in 1976, and his ideological drive to enforce his brand of communism left the country's social and cultural institutions devastated and the economy in tatters. 88% of people were living in absolute poverty. China's economy was just 5% of the United States's, and its GDP per capita was the equivalent of Zambia's. Fast forward 40 years, and China is unrecognisable. It's the world's second biggest economy, with GDP per capita up 50-fold. 700 million people have been lifted out of poverty, and its share of the global economy has gone from 1.8% in 1978 to 18.2% in 2017. So how did one of the world's poorest countries become a global superpower in just four decades. The death of Mao Zedong in 1976 brought with it radical changes for the Chinese Communist Party and the nation. When Deng Xiaoping became a key player in China's leadership in 1978, he embarked on a reform initiative aimed at opening up the economically and politically isolated People's Republic of China. He helped establish formal diplomatic ties with the United States and began opening up China to the world. From the years 1949 to 1978, only 200,000 Chinese citizens had travelled overseas. In 2017 alone, Chinese citizens made 130 million overseas trips and 139 million foreigners journeyed to China. But most importantly, Deng Xiaoping radically shifted China's economy. Its four-decade-long economic boom was built on embracing capitalism and encouraging private business, in stark contrast to the poorly managed state-run enterprises led by Mao. As multinational companies flocked to China, it quickly became the world's manufacturing hub, and growth became and still remains the Chinese Communist Party's number one priority. Deng Xiaoping changed the face of China forever. His successes have maintained his push for growth, and his mantra of socialism but with Chinese characteristics. And now President Xi Jinping is embarking on his own raft of ambitious plans. His One Belt, One Road initiative hopes to create a global trade network with China at its centre. And his increasingly bullish foreign policy could see him muscle out the United States as the key economic and military power in the Asia-Pacific. Welcome to 
this episode of the Leadership Lessons of George H.W. Bush, but this is a special edition because this is our opportunity following the Tiananmen Massacre, uh, which is the greatest flaw in this leader's resume, perhaps. But Deng Xiaoping, the leader of China, the preeminent leader of China from 1978 uh, through his death in 1997, uh, even though by that time he wasn't in office anymore. But make no mistake about this. If somebody were to say, who is the most important figure of the 20th century that you probably know very little about, it's Deng Xiaoping. Understand, he ranks with the World War II leadership of Roosevelt, Churchill, Stalin, with Richard Nixon, who who brought so much to to peace around the world, and open China, and Ronald Reagan, Deng Xiaoping stands with him. This is one of the most important figures in the entire 20th century, and and probably the foundation that he laid in China to modernize it may prove to make him an incredible figure. Going in, going throughout the 21st century, when you look at what uh, is going on in that country and the leadership they have now, they're building on the foundation that Deng Xiaoping uh, created, and that will make him a more consequential figure. And you'll hear several people that we're going to whose interviews we're going to be showing you or letting you listen to in this podcast. He's more important than Chiang Kai-shek, who would would lead China and then lead. Taiwan, he's more important than Mao Zedong, and he's more important than Chao Wenlei. This is the most important figure in Chinese, modern Chinese history, most likely. He has created the modern China that has now emerging as an economic superpower and the most likely going to be the other end of the other other end of the ball, the other end of the field in, in the history of the 21st century the way the United States and the Soviet Union were in the 20th century. Uh, China, uh, this is that important figure. And so we're going to take a look at him in this episode of Randall Wallace Presents, The Leadership Lessons of George H.W. Bush, and our special edition look at Deng Xiaoping. Lord is here, former Assistant Secretary of State covering China, former ambassador to China, and we'll talk with him about the present situation as he sees it. Back in a moment. During the Clinton administration's first term, he is now a private citizen, probably writing a book. But I'm pleased to have him here because he is one of those Americans, like Richard Holbrook and others, who's had an extraordinary number of visits with Deng Xiaoping over that period of time. Tell me when what he was like and what kind of leader he was and and what his passions were and and what you came to understand about him first of all we're talking about one of the 10 giant figures in history in this century without any question here's a man who affected the destinies of about a quarter of the world's population i think he'll have a mixed legacy we can come back to that he did many good things he also did some uh, bad things uh, he was uh, extraordinarily shrewd. He always took a strategic vision. I sat in on many meetings with him over many years, going back to the early 70s. Uh, in a meeting, he would make sure in front of the press he'd get off a couple of one-liners that would dominate the headlines, 
Then in the meeting itself, he would take the long view, sketch uh, strategic uh, contours of Chinese policy, whether it's reforms or relations with the U.S. or with the outside world, and let his subordinates uh, fill out the details. He could be pithy and uh, tough like Mao Zedong, or he could be uh, somewhat elegant uh, and have rambling discourses like Zhou Enlai, but he always kept to strategic themes. Was he more like one or the other? He was like neither one, frankly. Uh, he had the toughness uh, of Mao. Uh, he had some of the charisma of Zhou Enlai, uh, but uh, he was his own person and, as I say, a formidable impact on not only Chinese history but world history. What was it about him that enabled him to be there from the beginning and to end his life from Parkinson's and complications, respiratory complications, at age 93, still on top, albeit feeble? Well, obviously, extraordinarily tenacity and strength. He came back uh, from the political graveyard three or four times. He had a strong vision. Uh, he combined ruthless uh, power with uh, a vision of what would make a better life for the Chinese. And so he knew he had to move China toward a market economy after the disasters uh, of Mao's policies in the 50s and 60s. He also knew that China had to open up to the outside world uh, if it was going to develop. And he knew that the Communist Party could only maintain control if they lifted the horizons of the Chinese people, at least economically. But did he not open up politically because he feared it would uh, destroy his and the party's power? Uh, that's correct. He had the instinct of the authoritarian. He was, after all, a communist. Uh, he believed that the party could maintain control if people got a better life economically. Uh, he didn't seem to understand, in fact, he certainly didn't understand, that men and women do not live by rice alone. And therefore, his positive legacy will be the tremendous impact of his reforms starting in 1978-79, the tremendous growth of China ever since then, the opening to the outside world after this period of isolation and chaos during the Cultural Revolution, and the tremendous improvement in U.S.-Chinese relations. For all that, he deserves great credit, and history will record those as positive legacies. At the same time, this man was politically repressive. He was the architect of the Tiananmen Square a massacre, gave the orders there, and had a consistent streak of dumping his uh, protégés when he thought they were getting too liberal. He shut down the democracy wall in 1979. He was Mao's point man on the anti-rightist campaign in the late 50s. So you have a mixed legacy. Did he talk about legacy, about history at all when you were in the room with him? Oh, absolutely. Uh, but he would more project toward the future than dwell on the past. And he, as I said earlier, would always stick to strategic themes, uh, particularly the importance of the U.S.-Chinese relationship. And he generally put this in the context of the need to balance off some of China's historical antagonists like the Japanese uh, and the Russians and the Vietnamese. And he thought China's role in Asia was what? Well, like most Chinese leaders, uh, he was looking to the day when China would be number one again, the Middle Kingdom. You got to remember that China has been number one for most of its history, and then for about 150 years it was humiliated by outsiders. So it's had very little experience dealing with the outside world as equals. It's either been 
uh, the Middle Kingdom and everyone else being barbarians or irrelevant or tributaries or trampled by foreigners. And so he had this long-term vision, I'm sure, of China in the 21st century uh, being number one again, and he uh, went a long way toward uh, putting China on that path. And he saw Japan as a primary competitor. He's always was concerned about Japan and Russia. This is it's included in his last conversation that I was involved in with President Bush in 1989. He was still talking about that. Uh, he needed Japan for economic reasons, uh, but he did not forget the scars of uh, World War II and was concerned about a revival of Japanese militarism. That's why he welcomed the uh, U.S.-Japan Security Alliance. He felt that this would help keep Japan under control and assure its security. Having just served four years with the Clinton administration and been involved in the questions of uh, most favorable nation and the questions of human rights and the questions of, of economic relationships with China, where do you think the relationship goes from here? What did we need to look out for and where is the opportunity? Well, it's going to be, if you excuse the expression, a sweet and sour relationship for the next couple of decades, certainly. Uh, China wants a good relationship with us, both for economic reasons, trade, we take a third of their exports, investment, technology, and for geopolitical reasons, at least to their stronger, to balance off their near-term antagonists. At the same time, they're very suspicious of us. They allege, or they may actually think that we're trying to contain them, keep them from becoming a superpower, that we're trying to promote too much democracy and subvert their system, that we're flirting with uh, their territorial aims in Hong Kong and Taiwan and Tibet, uh, and thus they have a very mixed view. But for the next couple of decades, they want a relationship with us. We, in turn, have every interest in trying to engage China without illusions, keeping our powder dry for the next century, but trying to engage them, integrate them in the world community so that any adventurous impulses, when they become a major power, will be tamed through interdependence. So we've got to engage them on a broad front, emphasize where we can a positive agenda, whether it's the Korean Peninsula, Cambodia, where they've cut off aid to the Khmer Rouge, arms control, the environment, drugs, international crime, a lot of positive uh, areas of cooperation don't get much attention, as well as working away at the problems like human rights, Taiwan, trade, uh, and non-proliferation. Xiaoping followed Mao Zedong, and Mao is seen as, as the man who brought China into the modern world. But I think Deng, in the long run, may actually have had the greater impact. He took a gamble on reforms uh, that perhaps Mao would not have been willing to take. And I think it is possible uh, that the, as people look at the transition of China into the 21st century, it is clearly Deng that defined it. After Mao, who had been making the revolution and carrying on cultural revolution, died, China got a new start. And the person in charge was done. And he put it together. And the country came together and the new patterns developed under his leadership. He believed in trying experiments. He didn't have a set plan. But it developed during the 14 years that he was at the helm. When Dunn came to power, the country had an average income of less than $100 per capita. The country had been riven by civil war, and it's like putting the North and the South together after the Civil War, except they were in the same unit. You had people who worked together, some of whom had criticized and even killed and battered other people in the same unit. Now you had to get those people working together.
You also had people in power who were accustomed to old patterns and opening the country up wide, they were going to lose out. He wasn't beloved. He was not kindly and considered. He didn't put people above everything. He put the organization, the overall purpose above everything. But he was not irrational like Mao. He was not vindictive. And that combination of skills and respect from all his history was simply unique at that time. There was nobody else who could have held China together during that period of time. Hua Guofeng was put in place by Mao right after 1976, uh, was not strong enough to provide that kind of bold leadership in the future. And also, because of the experience abroad, unlike Mao and many others, he could understand what modernization took and how far China was behind. Uh, he was also extraordinarily good in dealing with foreigners. Uh, he uh, would start off with a very quick uh, kind of some funny thing he said, and then he would quickly zero in. He was not as charming as Zhou Enlai or as uh, ingratiating. He was not as philosophical as Mao, but he was very direct and people liked him. When Reagan saw him, he said afterward, he doesn't seem like a communist. Uh, he's a guy you could work with. Uh, so it's quite remarkable ability. He got down to business. He was straightforward. And uh, he was so direct and so open that people didn't realize he was committed to, to communism and to socialist structures. The eyes of Texas were on Deng Xiaoping today as the Chinese vice premier continued his tour of this country. His two-day schedule in Texas is certainly varied. A visit to the Space Center, a rodeo and barbecue tonight, an inspection of oil drilling equipment tomorrow. Despite some coolness and one hostile demonstration, he seems to be having a grand time. Here's a report from Jim Laurie. In Houston, Mayor Jim McCann gave Dung a box containing a set of Texas Silver Spurs. But Dung was denied the traditional key to the city, for Dung's visit here was controversial. About 400 noisy demonstrators were on hand at Dung's hotel. Houston, once named the sister city of Taipei, Taiwan, was not quite prepared to give the red Chinese leader a real red carpet treatment. But at NASA's Johnson Space Center, the Chinese vice premier was denied nothing. He climbed aboard the lunar rover, a model of the moon buggy the astronauts used to explore the lunar surface. But the high point of Deng's visit came when he donned a headset behind the controls of the new space shuttle simulator for a make-believe space flight. With Commander Fred Hayes at his side, Deng brought the orbiter in for a three-point landing from 100,000 feet. As reporters watched Deng's progress on TV, Hayes ordered Deng to lower the landing gear. He almost lowered it too soon. But in the end, all landed safe and sound. Dung having seen a demonstration of the marvels of American technology. Jim Laurie has been traveling with the vice premier and reports on Dung's activities in Texas. For excitement in Dung's Western weekend, it was hard to beat the Texas rodeo. We've got horse roping in outer Mongolia, said one Chinese, but nothing quite like this. And 
and Vice Premier Dong took it all in, waving his new Stetson hat, then aboard the old stagecoach for a swing around the arena. Dung, who had earlier visited the NASA Space Center, later remarked, it wasn't often that a Chinese could become an astronaut and a cowboy in one day. One of the most important tours the Queen has ever undertaken was in China in 1986. Her visit was a critical piece of diplomacy, coming soon after the fractious negotiations to return Hong Kong to China. At the start of her reign, the Great Wall was completely out of bounds. But here she was, receiving five-star treatment from her Chinese hosts. She was given privileged access to the newly excavated army of terracotta warriors. Normally one visits the terracotta warriors by standing on the walls around the edge and looking down at them. And we were most remarkably allowed to step into the pit, as it were, and walk amongst them as though we were part of the army. And one felt a tremendous sense of privilege. And she was clearly as enthusiastic as struck by it as, as, as I was, indeed, like our Chinese host as well. A test of her diplomatic abilities came at a lunch she hosted for Deng Xiaoping, the veteran and energetic communist leader. Please accept. The and respect from an old Chinese man. We'd been sitting at the table for 10 minutes, I suppose, and the Queen was sitting opposite Deng Xiaoping, who was, I was sitting alongside him, and she noticed he was fretting uneasily. And she remembered, of course, that he was a trained smoker, and she leant across to me and said, I think Mr. Deng would be rather happier if, if he was told he was allowed to smoke. And I told him that, and I've never seen a man light up more cheerfully than that. It's a very human touch, and he appreciated it. She did not move a muscle when Deng Xiaoping expectorated, that is, spat into a spittoon, which was about 100 yards away. Sorry, I exaggerate. It was at least a yard away, and he spat, as is a Chinese custom. And Duke of Edinburgh let out a guffaw or something, and we all went rather sort of looked around, and the Queen just didn't move. The Queen had invited virtually the whole Chinese government to a banquet on board Britannia. It was an evening which bowled over her own entourage, let alone the Chinese. Just as we, however reluctantly, respond to the theatre of monarchy and how we get those tingles down our spine, to be there on the deck of the Royal Yacht watching the Royal Marines beating the retreat, uh, in Shanghai, you know, something that's never happened before, and you feel a huge thrill, and you can sense the people around you responding and, and, and feeling that it's part of something that they're never going to see again. your host for Bridging the Political Gap. I want to thank you first for tuning in to our podcast and invite you to come to our website, randallwallace.com. 
There you can get a copy of our book, Always Vote Your Conscience, Don't Take It Personally, and Don't Fight the Same Old Battles Over and Over Again, with a lot of policy suggestions and things that I think everyone could embrace, an argument for why we need to be working together instead of fighting with each other. Also, you can take a look at the first 11 episodes of this podcast, which was a podcast documentary that looked at the World War II generation of bipartisan leadership that built the American century and the lessons we can learn from them to apply to today's situations. Again, thanks for tuning in to our podcast. And if you've enjoyed our show, please leave us a review at wherever you get your podcast. And now, let's get back to the show. Besides reforming China's economy, Deng was also regarded as the cornerstone to the establishment of China-U.S. relations. He was the first Chinese national leader to visit the United States. CGTN's Tianwei used to cover former U.S. President Jimmy Carter, who gave Deng a warm welcome in Washington, D.C. Carter recalled his visit with Deng Xiaoping back then. As you know, at the same time that Deng Xiaoping and I announced normal relations, he also announced reform and opening up. And the reform has brought about the economic uh, boom or progress in China with more equal treatment for poor and rich people with the eastern part of China and the western part of China with economic growth. This put China number two in the whole world now and maybe in the future will soon be number one. But he also, uh, at that time, China was very isolated among the nations of the world. And he is opening up to the outside world tied in with uh, normalization with the United States, has been a remarkable achievement. Uh, now, everywhere I go, uh, the people there have a new relationship of friendship and mutual support and help uh, with China, whereas in the past, China had no relationships at all in, uh, in Africa, very few, if any. And, and now, of course, China has opened up to the world with benefits to China and also benefit to those poor countries. Well, it seems that you've been focusing on the very positive side of the story. However, there are other sides of the story in which China is being considered as a threat, in which China is being considered as a challenge. There is still lack of strategic trust between China and the United States. But let me point out to you that Deng Xiaoping and I were not naive or ignorant at that time. And, uh, and we knew that uh, China and the United States had different culture, different ancient history, different form of government. Uh, different interests, uh, United States, highly developed country. China was a very backward economic country at that time. We saw the differences. So we anticipated that in the future there would be many differences between our two countries. But we also realized, I think accurately, that the things that bind us together for peace and progress are much more important than the things that, uh, that divide us one from another. I, I understand that uh, China is having uh, difficulties sometimes arguments with some of your neighbors about the East China Sea and so forth. Uh, but this is something that needs to be handled by China and those countries bilaterally. Deng Xiaoping's stature in the world became clear when he died in 1997.
mourning period has begun for Deng Xiaoping, the last of China's original communist revolutionaries. Chinese television said Deng died Wednesday after a long illness. He was born at the end of the old Chinese empire, lived through the republic, the long march, and the cultural revolution before taking the reins. With more on the story, including a live report from Hong Kong, we now join CNN International. And we welcome our viewers in the United States on CNN. We're going now to our Hong Kong Bureau Chief Mike Shinoy with the earliest of reactions as the day begins there. Mike? Relitza, here in Hong Kong, people woke up to this kind of headline in the local newspapers, Deng Xiaoping dead. In China, too, people are now getting the news which was announced in the middle of the night that the 92-year-old paramount leader had passed away after many years in decline. He had been out of the political limelight for at least uh, two or three years and had not held any formal positions in Chinese politics since the beginning of the 1990s. But Deng Xiaoping remained a dominant force, a man who had played a profoundly important role in Chinese politics for almost half a century. He was the great reformer, the man who first initiated the process of change that swept the communist world. But even when challenged in the streets, Deng Xiaoping never abandoned his commitment to Communist Party rule in China. Deng joined the Chinese Communist Party when he was 20. With the triumph of Chairman Mao's revolution, he became one of the most powerful men in China. But his pragmatism brought him into repeated conflict with party ideologues. Twice he was purged from the ruling hierarchy, twice he was rehabilitated. Finally, following Mao's death in 1976, Deng emerged as China's paramount leader and set the People's Republic on a course of reform and liberalization that would change the face of China and the world. His goal was a wealthy, modern, powerful China worthy of international respect. His method was the open door, establishing ties with the United States and other Western nations, encouraging international investment, private enterprise, family farming, and other aspects of a market economy. His guiding principle was pragmatism. It doesn't matter if a cat is black or white, he was fond of saying, as long as it catches mice. The results were immediate and impressive. The standard of living in China shot up. Freed from the shackles of Maoism, the people rediscovered style, music, romance, fun, and hope. But liberalization also led to economic dislocation and to outbursts of public discontent, tensions which finally exploded on the streets of Beijing in the spring of 1989. It was the most serious challenge to communist rule since the revolution, but it was crushed at a cost of hundreds, perhaps thousands of lives, on the orders of Deng Xiaoping. Despite his opposition to political liberalization, though, Deng never abandoned his vision of economic reform. And, following the collapse of Soviet communism, Deng concluded that the best hope of keeping the Chinese Communist Party in power and avoiding another Tiananmen was to deliver the economic goods to the people, as Mikhail Gorbachev so singularly failed to do. And so, in 1992, after a year out of public view, Deng emerged from retirement and launched a campaign for more and faster capitalist-style reforms. 
The country responded with a boom that gave China the highest economic growth rate in the world and turned it into a magnet for international investors who saw the emergence of a new economic superpower. But the burst of development brought with it many of the evils the communists had sought to eradicate. Corruption, inflation, a growing gap between rich and poor. And it failed to modernize a political structure in which Deng came to resemble a Chinese emperor of old. In his final public appearance at Chinese New Year's in 1994, he was visibly failing. New men assumed control over the day-to-day -day working of the Chinese government and Communist Party. But they continued to operate in the shadow of Deng Xiaoping, who remained, to the end, the center of China's political universe. It was a universe, however, in which the Chinese Communist Party was becoming increasingly irrelevant to the daily lives of a population more interested in making money than making revolution. And that may turn out to be Deng Xiaoping's most enduring legacy in trying to preserve the political system he served for so long he set in motion the forces which turned the world's most populous nation away from the path of orthodox communism. The result is that Deng's successors now preside over an emerging economic superpower, but over a political system that is facing a major legitimacy crisis and a society seething with all kinds of complicated social and economic problems. Riding the tiger is the term the Chinese often use to refer to it, and now that ride is entering a new and potentially difficult, if not dangerous, part of its journey. Back to you in Atlanta. We are joined now by one of the more prominent and prolific statesmen in U.S. history. Henry Kissinger was Secretary of State from 1973 to 1977 and helped arrange President Nixon's historic visit to China in 1972. He joins us now by telephone from New York. Dr. Kissinger, thank you very much for being with us. Twenty-five years have now passed since President Nixon's visit to China, and you heard President uh, Clinton call Deng Xiaoping the driving force behind Beijing's decision to normalize relations with the U.S. What are your memories of him? I met him first in 1974 when he was head of a Chinese delegation at the U.N., I remember him as uh, very matter-of-fact, very direct, very dedicated to economic reform, and uh, a man whose human qualities I appreciated greatly. What comes next? Do you expect a, a smooth transition given Jiang Zemin's uh, consolidation of power as uh, president, Communist Party chief, and, and head of the military, and also considering the fact the Chinese have had some time to prepare for this? Because we have to remember that nobody ever knows what the precise processes are by which they make uh, decisions. I have said that I know all the Chinese leaders, I know their families, I know their children, but I don't know who goes into what room to make what decisions and by what vote. Do but from what one can tell on the outside, I would think that there will be a smooth transition. The present team has had an opportunity to... Uh, work together, and in any event, due to a Chinese constitution adopted uh, under Deng, some of these leaders would have to change anyway later this year at the party congress, because you cannot remain as prime minister or vice prime minister for more than two terms. So Li Pang and several vice premiers would be changed anyway later this year. So there's some flexibility in the top leadership. Well, given
given the time between now and the 15th uh, Communist Party uh, Congress in the fall, as you mentioned, uh, do you read much jockeying for power within the, the Chinese leadership, given the crackdown on internal dissent, a uh, foreign policy with more teeth in it, shown by its approach to Taiwan and both Hong Kong, and also uh, its game of political chicken with the U.S. over trade versus uh, human rights? Well, uh, I think... Uh I uh, I don't think I think you're giving a rather extreme presentation of the Chinese uh, policy. I don't think they're engaged in a game of political chicken with us right now. Uh, in fact, I believe that, that they are making an effort, and we are making an effort to improve relations, which I support. And I think the administration is heading in the right direction. Uh, so I do not believe that foreign policy will be a big issue in the Chinese leadership. Uh, domestic policy may become more controversial. All right, former U.S. Secretary of State Henry Kissinger, thank you very much for joining us and offering your perspectives. Thank you. World leaders are offering praise for the late Chinese leader and the bridges he laid to improve his country's economy. Flags are flying at half-staff at Chinese embassies worldwide in honor of Deng Xiaoping. President Clinton called him an extraordinary figure on the world stage and the driving force behind China's decision to normalize relations with the United States. Other U.S. leaders also honored Deng's achievements. Deng Xiaoping played the role in uh, normalizing U.S.-Chinese relations, uh, and he is uh, to be remembered for that uh, and uh, the very important part that that played uh, for the United States. Let me just say that on behalf of the American people, uh, we offer our condolences to his family and to the Chinese people. Modernization of China, particularly market orientation. Uh, Deng Xiaoping, I'm sure, went to his death believing in his uh, ideology, totalitarian ideology. But he had this this uh, change in systems that was so dramatic in China following the death of Mao Zedong. And yes, I think that will be his main legacy, opening up markets, giving people an opportunity creating wealth, having people create wealth. The small entrepreneur had a chance when before they couldn't even exist. So I, I think you're right. I think that this, these changes, these changes in the economy, uh, and which have led to the changes in individual liberty, uh, are going to be the main part of his legacy. ABC News Nightline, reporting from Washington, Ted Koppel. It has always been easy to underestimate Deng Xiaoping. He was tiny, well under five feet. When he came to this country on his one-state visit, the most memorable picture to emerge was this gremlin-like man, then already in his 70s, wearing a huge Stetson. Most of us who didn't know one Chinese leader from another had heard about Mao, were vaguely familiar perhaps with Zhou Enlai, but this new guy who took over a couple of years after Mao died, where did he come from? 
Well, he was a brilliant military strategist who helped Mao win the Chinese Civil War against Chiang Kai-shek during the 30s and 40s. In the years to come, while Mao was throwing China into chaos during the 50s with his great leap forward, and then again in the 60s with the Cultural Revolution, Deng was arguing for a sane economic policy, one that emphasized common sense over ideology. It cost him and his family dearly. Deng was denounced as a capitalist roader, which was one of the worst things that you could be called during the Cultural Revolution. Somehow, Deng Xiaoping and his common-sense approach survived. After all, the little red books and Mao badges and the madness that went with them were long gone. What China is today owes at least as much to Deng, who died this morning at the age of 93, as it does to any Chinese leader of this century. When you see that made-in-China label on the blouses and sneakers, toys and radios that we find in so many of our stores these days, you are seeing Deng's work. But that is as nothing when compared to the changes that Deng brought about inside China. This report was prepared by correspondent Garrick Utley and producer Deanna Lee. It is a three-story house in the old French quarter of Shanghai, built in pre-communist China for one. Today, it is home for 14 families. The house and those who have lived in it have seen almost as much history as Deng Xiaoping. We made our way through the suffering. We understand what true bitterness and happiness are. His father lived here. I lived here too. In 1946, Li Shigong moved into the house. His father was a high-ranking general whose family lived well. Upstairs were two bedrooms and a living room. Below that was another lounge. China then was a capitalist society crippled by mass poverty. It couldn't house all its people or feed them. Some begged for foreign handouts. Others had to eat weeds to survive. The family lived here, but the servants stayed in back. In the past, only a few people were well off. Deng Xiaoping was born into a prosperous family, living in a 22-room manor, but he was not blind to his country's decline. As a student in France, he joined a group of communists who were embittered by China's instability. Deng returned to a China racked by civil war. In 1934, he joined communists fleeing persecution in Mao Zedong's 6,000-mile long march into China's interior. After the long march, Mao came to depend on Deng as a shrewd and daring commander who repeatedly saved Mao from near defeat. Deng was a man for results. His victories were decisive for the communist takeover in 1949. Three days later, Li Xigong's family lost the home on Xinlu Road. When we left, the state gave it to the people. The house was divided up. Empty places were filled with more people. Recently, Li entered the house for the first time in nearly 50 years, meeting many of the 70 people who now live there. Their stories reflect us from Mao Zedong to Deng Xiaoping. When did you move in here? 1957. That was just as Mao was about to order the Great Leap Forward, a disastrous attempt at forcing industrialization. It led to a famine in the countryside in which more than 20 million people died. Devastated by Mao's insistence on ideology over pragmatism, Deng argued for private farming to increase food production. 
This meant going against Mao's ideal of socialist communes. But results were what mattered to Deng. It doesn't matter if it's a black cat or a white cat, he said, as long as it catches the mouse. Living in Shanghai, in the house on Xinlu Road, Su Jinsha and her baby daughter avoided the famine. But Mao's failures increased his insecurity and his hunger for power. In 1966, he unleashed the Cultural Revolution. Anyone Mao considered a threat to the proletariat, anyone who was educated or bourgeois, was attacked. My husband was called a counter-revolutionary because he worked in a technology department. They made him wear those dunce hats and kept him in isolation for two years. Her daughter, Chen Jie, was 10 years old. I went through the same thing my father did. At school, the kids would yell, despicable. Mao also turned against Deng Xiaoping, who would dare to oppose him by calling for private farming. Deng was branded a capitalist rotor and held with family members in an army barracks. His eldest son, reportedly pushed out a fourth floor window by Mao's red guards, was paralyzed. During this time of mindless brutality, Li Shigong was beaten and held in a labor camp. It was the worst time of my life, the Cultural Revolution. The same as me, Deng Xiaoping suffered. There was no hope for people like us. By the time Mao died in 1976, the Chinese were suffering from a loss of faith in communism, a stagnant economy, and a power vacuum. For two years, China was led by followers of the whatever policy. Whatever Mao had wanted was right. But Deng Xiaoping reemerged, resilient and determined. He dared to say that Mao had his defects and made errors. For a country in need of change, Deng became the undisputed leader. China has entered a new phase. Deng was still a loyal communist, but he realized that to bring China out of its backwardness and poverty, to catch the mouse, required moving in new directions. Deng visited the United States as he opened China the world. He also embraced a free market economy. Once again, Deng's pragmatism brought results. To the residents of Xinle Road, he brought Xinle, new happiness. With Deng Xiaoping, people got higher salaries. My husband spent every penny on books. Our whole house was full of books. On the second floor of the house, three generations of the Gao family live in this space. Eight people in two rooms. But their opportunities have improved. One son is a doctor. A daughter-in-law works in computers. Before, with collectivization, you couldn't earn your own money. After the opening up and reform, you could go out and do it for yourself. Things are much better. Now that our basic requirements have been met, we can do what we want with the extra money. Economic liberation also opened people's minds. Before, if there was public denunciation, we'd just take it. If they asked us to sing and dance, we'd do it. But the blindness of the Cultural Revolution doesn't exist anymore. We make up our own minds. As long as they did not make up their minds against the authority of the Communist Party. Deng never meant for his economic reforms to lead to this kind of political freedom. When the confrontation came in Tiananmen Square in 1989, he supported the bloody crackdown. <laughs> Deng offered no regrets on television a few days later, saying, we must never forget the cruelties of our enemies. We must show them no mercy. 
Premier Lee Pung urged the 1989 attack on Tiananmen Square, and as one of Deng's successors, he makes it clear that nothing is about to change. China and the United States have different views on human rights due to their different histories, philosophies and social systems. We rate the United States using human rights as a pretext to interfere in the internal affairs of China. The fear that Deng's successors will not be able to control China's affairs was dramatized recently in a Beijing theater. At the end, the emperor's ghost returns to haunt his successor who has destroyed the dynasty. That was a major concern of Deng Xiaoping and Chinese today, that the dynasty of reforms he launched could still fall apart. We hope the central party will be united, but sometimes I have concerns. I wonder if a situation like the Cultural Revolution could happen again. I don't want society to go back to being chaotic. We ordinary Chinese people just want a stable life and to make more money. That's enough. You can't make too much of that point. Stability, an absence of chaos. The Chinese who had war in the 40s, famine in the 50s, and political madness in the 60s and 70s, for the most part, just want to have a little peace and make a little money. And as we'll see when we come back, Deng Xiaoping made that possible. On Xinlu Road stands a Russian Orthodox church, a remnant of Western influence in Shanghai before the communists took over. Now a symbol of the new happiness the street is named for. Today, there is a new congregation of the faithful. Services are conducted electronically. The church has become a stock exchange. For the past 15 years, Deng Xiaoping preached, to get rich is glorious, and the Chinese have become true believers. If you don't try to make money, who else is going to do it for you? Not only have Deng's reforms allowed people the chance to make as much money as they can, they have also lifted 170 million people out of poverty. China now has the fastest growing economy in the world. Even after Deng, we'll continue with the opening up and reform. There's too many people involved to put a stop to it. The Chinese know the potential of their power, that their time has come. What Americans fear is that China will become a mighty power. Now that the Soviet Union has broken up, we, with our enormous population and growing economy, pose too much of a threat to the rest of the world. If the Chinese ever build a monument to Deng Xiaoping, none could be larger than the city of Shanghai itself. For what is happening here and throughout the country is the dramatic result of China's opening to the world, its embrace of capitalism, and a booming economy which shows no sign of slowing down. Deng Xiaoping made that happen. Reform and opening up, said Deng, require boldness and courageous experiments. Deng loosened the control of his central government and handed economic power to the provinces. He created special development zones, including the Pudong area of Shanghai. It's changed so much so fast, I don't recognize it anymore. When they're building something, in just the blink of an eye, suddenly it's finished. With over 13 million people, Shanghai is China's largest city, and it's being transformed with breathtaking speed into a world commercial and financial center. Deng Xiaoping did more than open the door to capitalism. He unleashed the powerful entrepreneurial energy of the Chinese, with all its consequences. 
Growth of 11% a year is spectacular, but inflation is more than 10%. Corruption is rampant, organized crime is rising, and those who are not making it complain. The change is, is not much connect with the ordinary people. In the People's Park, Chinese gather to practice their English and talk about how the reforms have changed their lives for better and worse. In the market economy, jobs are no longer guaranteed, and people like this man are among the growing number of urban unemployed. In Shanghai, the poor people become more and more poor. The difference between the rich and the poor maybe will, be, will be higher. Among the richest are those at Shanghai's international securities market. Deng Xiaoping's reforms have created a new elite called the Dahu, big players who place their bets on company stocks. Under communism, Chenglong Shen had little opportunity working for a state industry. Now, he's a millionaire. If you have a pioneering spirit of enterprise, you can get rich. You just waste your time looking at the sun, you'll fail. Aren't you just like that in America? Everyone over there is just grabbing at opportunities. Now we're also going that way. Isn't that great? And is Chung worried about the growing gap between rich and poor? When you have rich and poor, you have competition. When you have competition, society will develop. It's completely normal. Film director Zhang Yimou agrees that income disparities are the inevitable outcome of Deng's reforms. He focuses on the greed in society that can lead to corruption and crime. His latest film is set in the decadent Shanghai of the 30s, with obvious resonance for today. I'm pretty worried about today's trends. If everybody just thinks about money and how to earn it, then this will cause big problems, big problems for the whole of society. Of course I'm nervous about life after Deng. We all are. We don't want things to get worse. As long as Deng was alive, even if he was on life support toward the end, there was no question that his policies would remain in force. Now that he is dead, it is assumed that his policies will continue, but assumptions about China are always dangerous. More of Gary Cutley's report in a moment. Perhaps the most important change Deng Xiaoping brought to China can be seen when you travel down a rutted and often muddy road. The village has no name except that of the road. The Zhao family lane. About 90 people live here. Not long ago, this was rural China, where lives were lived out growing rice. If each year is better than the last, that's enough. And each passing year has brought these farmers more since Deng launched his first reforms in the countryside. We must blaze a path of our own, he said, and build socialism with Chinese characteristics. One of those characteristics turned out to be free enterprise. Deng focused first on the peasants, 80% of the population. He wanted the quickest results for the largest number of people. Deng Xiaoping said that as long as we farmers met our quotas, we could sell any surplus produce for our own profit. The result was that farmers' incomes tripled, but it didn't stop there. Four years ago, most people in this village still lived in one-story houses with dirt floors, and they had only a limited awareness of the outside world. Americans have tall noses and yellow hair. New York? I don't know where it is. 
Today, the village is dotted with new homes, two and three stories, with plenty of rooms. This is our bathtub. Other places here don't have one. Kuchong and his wife just finished their dream house, but they have only begun to furnish it. In Deng Xiaoping's China, there are eight bigs to have. A furniture suite, fridge, stereo, camera, color TV, washing machine, electric fan, and motorcycle. Kuchong is well on his way to prosperity. He still has farmland, but that is no longer where he earns most of his money. Now we have jobs and earn salaries and can go out and buy the food. Today's young people want to work in the factories because they get more money. Father-in-law, Bing Tsan, used to be a farmer. People are building more houses. There's also more factories being built. So there's less and less land. And with modernization, fewer people are needed to work that land. To employ the surplus labor, Dung encouraged semi-private village industries, another example of socialism with Chinese characteristics. They are now the fastest-growing sector of China's economy. Binsong is now the sales manager at a plant that makes parts for fuel injection systems. Business is growing at 20% a year. The average salary is almost five times that of a farmer. 25 members of the Zhao family work here. Wen Li is 19. When I was very small, my dream was to be a teacher. My studies were not good enough, though, so Mummy and Daddy sent me to the oil pump plant. Wen Li hasn't given up dreaming. A four-lane highway is being built near her home. It will lead to Shanghai. She would like to move there one day. She also dreams of roads that will take her beyond China. I think in America the buildings are very, very tall, with many, many rooms. Everybody must be really, really happy. Everybody must walk around with a smile. Everyone must be very rich. And rich is clearly what all Chinese want to become. There is a saying in Chinese, when there's enough to eat, the ruler is heading down the right road. Deng Xiaoping opened the road for China's historic change, bringing increasing prosperity to one-fifth of the world's population including the people of Zhao Family Lane. They are convinced that there's no turning back. We won't have to walk along the muddy roads anymore. Everyone will be better off. We'll walk along glossy, paved roads, right? A closing thought in a moment. Which sheds light on the insanity that prevailed throughout much of China during the 1950s. Suffice it to say that 30 million people starved to death and that some villages were reduced to cannibalism. Those were the policies of the great helmsman, as he was called, Mao Zedong. Mao also gave China the madness of the Cultural Revolution in the 60s and early 70s. Tens of millions of Chinese lives were ruined by... Dong Xiaoping's legacy, by contrast, is stability. Yes, he ordered the army to crush the student movement in Tiananmen Square in 1989. And yes, dissidents have been ruthlessly repressed throughout China. But the Chinese people have endured so much worse over the past 40 years that Deng is likely to go down in history as the great normalizer, which may prove to be of more lasting value to the most populous country in the world than all of the rest of it. That's our report for tonight. I'm Ted Koppel in Washington. For all of us here at ABC News, good
Rose was a man who had suffered. His son had been thrown out of a second-story window during the Cultural Revolution and is a paraplegic to this day. He himself had had to wear a dunce cap and was marched through the streets, had to repudiate himself and confess to that most terrible of capital rotor crimes. He was a bridge player which was the worst thing imaginable in cultural revolution times in China. And by the time he reached power, in his mid-70s, he was in a rush. He was angry for revenge, and he had this picture of China to rise up from its triple humiliations, from the Western powers, from the Japanese, and from its own civil war, and from the cultural revolution, four, four problems. He saw it all. Um, and that vision, China's destiny sustained him, but he, he, he had a strategic grasp, which was unbelievable. How did he feel? But he was, he was tough. He was so tough. And, and again, I repeat this because it's central to my understanding of this extraordinary person. He believed life was a struggle. And he did not see it in the same human terms as we would. Did he like, admire, or did it care what he felt about the United States? He admired our technology. Just our technology. It, these were the most modern toys. But he, I think, like almost every Chinese, senior Chinese I'm aware of, he thinks we're kind of politically naive uh, and socially backward. Uh, but that we are technologically advanced. How did he fear the Japanese because of their technology? Uh, his attitude to the Japanese was hard to understand. He didn't like them, but he knew he had to work with them. His attitude towards the Chinese went, uh, towards the Russians went back and forth from periods of great anger to periods where he wanted to work with them. It was only the Vietnamese who really got him angry. Why? Because Vietnam, a small little country, by Chinese standards, that should have been part of a larger Chinese empire, in his mind, kept sticking it to the Chinese. And that's why in January of 1979, he launched this punitive war against the Vietnamese, destroyed the northern 40 miles of Vietnam, but in the end, failed in his mission. It was a great setback for him. And in the end, his legacy is that he, he opened China. His legacy is simple. He changed the history of China, and thereby Asia, and thereby the world. And Tiananmen is this huge cloud over his head, the massacre in June of 1989. And how do you weigh that in the context of everything? It was a terrible mistake. There's no excuse for it. It was totally unnecessary, and we still don't know what really happened. But his central legacy was bringing a billion Chinese into the modern world. But he was flawed, like so many great leaders. Tibet is another huge problem, but but history will record him as the, and I want uh, this may surprise you, history will record him, not Mao, and not Zhou Enlai, as the most influential historical figure in Chinese 20th century history. Well, Richard Holbrook, thank you very much. It's my pleasure.
Thank you for listening to Bridging the Political Gap. If you've liked what you've heard, please share it. And we would love to hear from you and your thoughts on, on our show. So if you'd like to, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast. And until next time, thanks again, and so long for now.